Robert, I can I can feel everyone uh, eagerly waiting with anticipation. The biggest. Why did somebody uh, big get indicted this week? Uh, I don't know. Another just another indictment. Twice impeached, twice acquitted. Now twice indicted, but this one, this one, Robert, they have him dead to rights. Because um, the other one was just a state indictment on bogus George Soros, Alvin Bragg motivated district attorney bull crap. Everyone said it's bull crap from beginning to end. Even though he'll still get convicted on that, uh, given what politics is. This is a, this is federal indictment, Robert. We now have the first president, former president ever federally indicted. Um, and the indictment, they've got him this time, Robert. I mean, even Jonathan Turley, and I'm not making fun of Jonathan Turley because I do respect what he has to say, which is why I was reading his assessment uh, with with great interest, says, you know, this is not something to laugh at. He wasn't, you know, falling off the chair sobbing. He said, this is not something to laugh at. The allegations in here, you know, to the extent that they pr are proven to be true, look pretty bad. Uh, you got some very, very compromising photographic evidence of boxes of documentation. We don't know what's in it, but we're told that there's classified documents in it. Uh, I don't know, nuclear stuff. This, you know, they, they drop all sorts of words, but we've seen photographs of, of boxes of allegedly classified information or containing some in ballrooms at his uh, Mar-a-Lago place, in bathrooms. Uh, so we've got what is purported to contain classified information seemingly not kept in a secured location. That's one of the allegations of the federal indictment. The other damning allegation of the federal indictment is that Trump was looking like he's going to play smart. Do we have to play ball knowing that he's, I don't know, under investigation, knowing that they're asking about these documents, trying to facilitate getting the documents back? He said internally, do I need to play ball? This is evidence of wrongdoing. What I think is the most um, problematic allegation or, or a series of allegations is that Trump, while he's being recorded, meeting with a reporter, basically says to the reporter, here, have a look at this documentation. It's all classified. It's all, it's, it's, it's private. It's confidential. I could have declassified it when I was president. I didn't. And now you know that I can't, uh, but have a look at it anyhow. And then you have one of his aides, uh, you know, seemingly saying we're in trouble now type thing. Trump says, look, they, 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 they tried to trick me. We're going to get to what the information was, but Trump is basically saying to a reporter, I know this is classified. I could have declassified it when I had the opportunity. I didn't. Here, have a look at it, thus violating the law, although I'm not sure that he's charged with unlawful disclosure of that information to the journalist. You'll help me there. Third one was the plucking noise, Robert. Apparently, his lawyers have turned on him, which is very bad. His lawyers have provided, I guess, their notes from meetings one of which, or the one most damning as far as I'm concerned from reading the indictment was Trump, without saying anything, when confronted with the fact that they had folders that might have contained classified information that he was supposed to return, when asked what to do, Trump made a plucking noise, apparently suggesting to his attorneys, remove the documents that, are, uh, that I'm not supposed to have that I still have because it would be incriminating, thus admitting incriminating uh, withholding of, of documents. So, Robert, I, I mean, I guess the, the most important to me is him seemingly declaring the um, actus reus, the knowledge of that what he was doing was unlawful when he showed this report or something. Break it down. I, I, I watched your analysis on um, uh, Bourbon with Barnes on vivabarneslaw.locals.com, but that was before the indictment had come out with the details fleshing it out. I know what I think, and just so everybody knows what I think. I'm starting off on the premise that they are lying yet again. This is like Russiagate, Steele dossier, January 6th, impeachment one, impeachment two, I'm starting off for right or for wrong that they're lying. So what are they omitting in this in this indictment that would be exculpatory? 
what are what are Trump's not just legal defenses, but factual defenses to these otherwise damning allegations? I think I've done a good job summarizing it, Robert. Let me know if I missed anything. But what is your take and what is your interpretation? The fundamental flaw of Turley's analysis, Sean Trendy made a similar kind of analysis where he said it was okay that Hillary Clinton walked, but it was okay to prosecute Trump. Uh, uh, you know, how Sean Trendy, a real clear politics, pretends to be anything other than a Trump hater now. He's been caught lying repeatedly about Trump. Tom Bevan, at, you know, real clear politics should reassess who he has there. Sean's an old friend of mine, but he's gone uh, full TBS for a while and ever since he went up to Ohio State. There's one core problem with all of these claims. Uh, this is the elected president of the United States. He determines if a document's classified or not. He determines a document is secret or not. He determines whether it's a government document or not. Congress can't do that. Justice Department can't do that. The intelligence community can't do that. This is an indictment saying Donald Trump used his own documents, kept his own documents, liked his own documents, and didn't want to give his own documents back. That's his constitutional right. So the problem with this case is the entire case is bogus. It instead, this is an attempt of the deep state to overturn our constitutional democracy, to say that they can tell the world when they seek their secrets get to be disclosed. That's what this case is premised on. Donald Trump rebutting the lies of General Milley, who lied to Bob Woodward, who claimed that he had stopped Trump from waging war in Iran when it was actually Trump that stopped Milley from waging war in Iran. Now, here Milley is, by the admission of the indictment, leaking actual information that he was not entitled to disclose, that he was not entitled to declassify, that he was not entitled to declare a personal record that is subject to national security information laws because he is a lesser official subject to those laws. And yet there has been no indictment, not even investigation of Milley, and he's still in legal office today with Republicans in Congress doing jack about it. By contrast, the president, who is vested by the second article of the United States Constitution with all executive power. That means the president decides any information that comes in is classified for his benefit and his alone. It is only secret for his benefit and his alone. It is only national security information for his benefit and his alone. He can unilaterally declare anything declassified, not national security, a personal record, anytime he wants. The mere act of taking the documents with him, and let's remember, he's not taking original source documents. All of those exist because, as has been pointed out by members of Congress on a range of places, these are all digital documents, so they're digitally stored. So this is only about the president having rights to his documents as a matter of constitutional law. These are all his documents. The Presidential Records Act merely reflects that. I mean, I had these people saying, oh, he can't do this. Congress says otherwise with the national security. Imagine if Congress passed a law tomorrow that said, we hereby declare that if the president ex executes any of his second article duties, that is hereby a crime and goes to prison. That would be patently unconstitutional. They have no authority to limit the executive branch under Article 2. They are given zero executive enforcement powers. The unelected bureaucracy is given zero constitutional powers. 
They only have any powers at all because the president gave it to them. So consequently, uh, the entire uh, charge is nonsense. The, all the alleged crimes are gibberish. They are a direct attack on constitutional government in America. It is an attempt to say we, the deep state, get to tell you what is and isn't a secret. We, the deep state, get to tell you what is and isn't classified. We, the deep state, get to tell you what is and isn't national security information. And even your elected president can't tell you our secrets or he goes to prison. That is how dangerous this criminal prosecution is. This goes way past Trump. This is the deep state war on democracy such that if this crime is upheld, we don't have a constitutional democracy anymore. We have a deep state run government that has killed the Constitution in America. Robert, I'm going to push back, not push back, but rather just ask the questions that I know someone who believes in this would ask you. And I should just say also for the crowd, I'm just summarizing the, um, the indictment. I know there is some debate, not from the indictment itself, but just as a matter of fact, as to what recordings they have, what document Trump showed the reporter. It's not even definitively known as a disputed matter of fact, but you know, when you're looking at an indictment, you read the allegations as allegations. Robert, some will say uh, that Trump knows that there is a declassification process for those who are listening. I'm putting it in quotes. There is actually no um, procedural, lawful, legally set out method, procedure for declassification. That is correct? Well, two different things. All the declassification laws, all the national security information laws, all the Presidential Records Act laws clarify is that all these laws are about everybody except the president. Because constitutionally, they cannot limit the president. This, imagine being your, uh, you, you have your own company and you're the sole owner of your company and you write a rule, set of rules for your employees and then you don't govern, live by those rules. So what? Right? Like, let's say I wrote rules that say before you write a brief, do these five things. And then I write a brief that doesn't do those five things. Can, does that make me what I've done like illegal somehow? No, because the source of the rules are me. So the point is that the president can't be governed or limited by any of these rules, nor is this new. So the second issue that comes up with this, that most po people have looked at the statute, I'm saying the statute reflects the Article 2. That's what this is all about fundamentally. Who has the power under Article 2? The elected president of the United States or the unelected deep state? Jack Smith said the unelected deep state. He, in fact, who did he thank? He didn't thank the American people. He thanked the men and women of the intelligence community. This is a, this is a CIA indictment. This is an intelligence community indictment. This is a deep state indictment. Not only meant to take out Trump and interfere in the 2024 election, not only to deny us, the American people, the right to pick our own president, but the right of us, the American people, to know the secrets of our government when our elected president decides to share them with us. That's what pa Patrick Henry said long ago. If you allow too many secrets, you will destroy government. You will destroy liberty. You will empower tyranny. That's why the Snowden Reader book is behind. That's what Julian Assange's argument has been for several decades. He said the great danger to liberty in the world are the secrets kept by the elites in the deep state apparatus and intelligence communities and military industrial complexes. And now they're saying Trump, I mean, let's get the backstory here. The backstory is General Milley lied about him trying to trick Trump into going into war in Iran. And Trump stopped him. 
And then Milley went around lying to people, including Bob Woodward, saying that he stopped Trump from doing what Trump stopped Milley from doing. And so all Trump did says, I got documents. And he's using language so that they sound authoritative and impressive and all the rest. It has no legal bearing in a criminal context whatsoever, because, again, these are his documents. He can do what he wants. When he left with them, they became his. How do we know that? Because a federal district court judge in the District of Columbia already established it a decade ago. Bill Clinton took tapes that had national security information on those tapes, had classified information on those tapes. He stuck them in his sock drawer. He refused to give them to the government, refused to give them to the archives, refused to consider them government records. He had made no formal designation of them as declassified. He hadn't gone through the, imagine these people are citing an executive order. This is the, this comes from the president. The idea that the president can somehow bind the president doesn't even make any sense. It binds everybody but the president because constitutionally that's the way it has to be. And so here, but we can look at Clinton. Clinton didn't declassify anything in there. Clinton didn't go through any formalized process. Clinton didn't formally declare them his personal records. Clinton just took them just like Trump did. And what did the federal district court say? It said under the say under article two, under the presidential records act, that is a decision solely for the president to make the mere act of taking them, made them his personal records, made them not public records, not national security records, not classified records, not records that belonged in the archives uh, and records that no one could compel him to even turn over. And so now Trump has clearly got a lot of bad legal advice throughout this entire process because they should have fought this from day one. These are Trump's records, but they're indicting Trump over him keeping his own records, which are constitutionally his own records, statutorily his own records, and under existing the only legal precedent that exists, the Clinton case, his own records. Now, if they're his records, do I understand then that they would be his records to take but not necessarily his records to disclose to the public? Oh, yeah, he can disclose whatever he wants. Okay, and that's so he- always been the case. Because think about if it's otherwise. If it's otherwise, the deep state can keep secrets that the elected president can't tell the American people. We no longer have a constitutional democracy if the, this case is upheld. But the argument, the rebuttal to that would be that uh, the, once the president is out, once he's pre- while he's president, he can declassify whatever he wants. Once he's out, even if he takes him as his own personal property, He's lost the declassification uh, privilege or or, or, or power. It, it, it's already automatically declassified by the fact that he took them. They're his personal records. Yeah, that's that's I mean, the, I mean, the idea that classification can exist independent of the president who who the records were created during his administration or while he was president. He had access to them would mean that you have these super secret documents that the president has to formally go through a specialized process to decl- to, to make public or they're forever secret. It empowers the deep state over the president. That cannot happen. These are things he can do whatever he wants, anytime he wants. Second question is, this is an argument people are raising. He did go through a something of a formal declassification process with respect to other documents. He didn't do it now. Because that allowed other people to disclose those documents other than him. In other words, all declassification does is allows people other than the president to provide information. Because it's important to remember, all this is for the benefit of the president. So that, that it's for the benefit of the president, so he can do whatever he wants with it. He, you could think of it as he can unilaterally waive it anytime he wants. Those classification provisions are only meant so that other people can't disclose the documents without his authority or approval. 
not whether he can disclose those documents. Okay, that's a very, that, that something just clicked in my head there. Let me ask you this question, Robert. Are there not laws that pertain to certain documents that even the president of the United States would be lawfully prohibited from disclosing, you retaining? Because that, that would be a restraint on the executive power under the Article 2. So I, that, I'm just that's, thinking, I'm just that's, thinking like, that's Congress. It, the way to think of it is this. Is Congress restricting anything in Article 2? Is it restricting the power of the executive? If it is, it's unconstitutional. And that, that's the problem. What we, Congress can say, we'll only give you money for A, B, C, and D. But what Congress can't do, and Congress can subpoena to oversee what the agencies are up to, but what Congress can't do is restrain the executive branch from its executive's duties. That it can't do. I, but I have a, I could think of a hypothetical where if the president doesn't declassify something formally or announce it or you know, whatever the process would be while president, what he could then do is potentially take, you know, damning information as relates to the next president, right? You know, once, once the next president's elected and then use that as blackmail material, say, I'll make it public unless you do my bidding for me. Oh, uh, and, and once he's no that, order- LBJ actually explicitly did that. Uh, LBJ did that to, to members of Congress and did it to the Nixon administration. Said, if you blame me for certain things, I'll do boop, 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 boop. Uh, so the, uh, that, that's, that's the consequent because we're, we're taking trade-offs. Do we give the power to the elected exec president or do we give the power to some nameless bureaucracy? And, we're, and what consequences flow from that? He gets, once a pre- man is elected president, man or woman is elected president, they get access to all of our secrets and they get to do whatever they want. And we take that trade off because we want an elected official with access to our secrets. We don't want a secret government that's independent of any elected official. We will take the trade offs that maybe this elected president will go and do something terrible with these secrets uh, over at a secret branch of government that is allowed to keep secrets from the elected people, elected representatives of the American people. All right. Now, uh, when you did the breakdown on Viva Barnes Law. Local, Viva Barnes Law. Locals.com before the indictment, uh, you weren't sure if it was going to be in Florida. It was a uh, grand jury convened in Washington, but they they chose uh, Florida. I- is it in fact going to be in Florida? Yes, it's a it's it's assigned to the same judge who has already expressed skepticism about the case. So, so the jury pulls the Southern District of the case is the Southern District of Florida. Palm Beach Division, I believe. Oh, that's not far. That's not far from where I live, Robert. I might, no, no, I, I, that's where I, he's appearing on Tuesday. Oh, so, and I'm not in Florida right now for this. I might have to use this as an excuse to go back to uh, go back <laughs> to Florida. So I'm, I'm not even going to. I'm going to be in Arizona next week. But so it is in so, Florida. Yeah, so, I mean, they, now they sometimes they do some of the original appearances in Miami, but the case basically will be the jury pool would be Palm Beach and the surrounding counties, basically evenly split between Trump and Biden in 2020. Um, though trending more Trump in 2024. So the jury pool uh, looks like you know, pretty close to an American-style jury pool. Uh, the judge is a Trump appointee who's already expressed skepticism over the case, the 11th so stop, Circuit. Just stop you there. A Trump appointee would, would in theory, he not have to recuse himself? Might oh, no, be- no. Just like they never recuse themselves from a Clinton case or Obama case. Well, I, I, didn't, say the, I didn't say ethics runs both ways, Robert. I'm just saying... My, my oh, no, it's make- because the... To disqualify, they have to have a personal monetary interest in the case generally okay. uh, or an extrajudicial. The fact they were appointed by that person has no uh, impact on a uh, on a, any kind of disqualification. Otherwise, Republicans could always disqualify. You could you, you'd be you'd be stuck because let's say you have a case of a Republican against a Democrat. Right. Then you have no judge because everybody's been appointed by one or the other. Yeah. Right. So that that's so practically speaking, that's also why it goes that way. But now the uh, uh, 
in terms of defenses, he has a bunch of other than the Article Two defense and the Presidential Records Act defense I just referenced, which I think goes to the, all the charges of the entire thing. The there are a bunch of other constitutional defenses he has. Uh, uh, first up will be the First Amendment, selective prosecution, or first up in order of the Constitution after Article Two. I, I should say, actually, before that would be the impeachment clause, which I've previously articulated the argument for as concerns New York. Uh, it would apply it maybe even more strongly in the federal context. And again, my argument is rather simple. The, we have a, a provision that says when an ex-president can be indicted. It's right in the Constitution. It says after impeachment by the House and after conviction in the Senate, then and after removal, so he's an ex-president by definition, then he can be indicted. Uh, my view is that has to be read in exclusively that process, or otherwise it makes no sense that it's even there. Mm-hmm. Why is that even there if if it doesn't apply to ex-presidents? Not only that, we know impeachment can be done of an ex-president because they did it to Trump. They did his conviction trial hearing after he was no longer president of the United States. So, uh, my, to say, so the first argument would be Article 2, Presidential Records Act, Trump's the National Security, Espionage Act laws. And should all be uh, the entire indictment dismissed on those grounds. Second, the indictment should be dismissed because it, he has not been impeached or convicted on these charges. He's never been convicted as all at all. As you mentioned, he's been acquitted twice. And some of these charges were implicitly referenced in that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the on those grounds, there should be dismissal to enforce the impeachment clause. Third grounds for dismissal is the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, but it will have a bifurcated basis. One is selective prosecution under the First Amendment. You have a right of free speech, a right of free assembly, a right of free expression, a right of, of, uh, of freedom of press, a right to petition your government. All of these rights are, have been interpreted to mean right to access the ballot, right to circulate petitions to get on the ballot. By definition, it should mean a right to run for office, president, and it has been interpreted that way in a wide range of contexts. And so consequently, my view is, that the, we should read the First Amendment to prohibit one administration from indicting their leading opponent in the next administration. So now this has one danger. The one danger is that by declaring yourself a president, while you're president, no criminal indictment could go forward. No criminal case could go forward. But that is a very small downside risk. The number of people who have qualified to get on enough ballots uh, to be elected president is less than a hundred over American history well, and over hundreds of years. It's also extremely temporally limited in that it would only postpone or hold off an indictment until there's a successful or unsuccessful bid. Correct. Exactly. So my view is the first amendment should be interpreted under the selective prosecution clause to be expanded, to prohibit something that has been our custom and protocol throughout American history, which is we do not indict the leading opponent of our campaign. We don't allow one administration to indict the leading opponent of their reelection. Um, and it should be interpreted to provide for that during the election season, uh, provided uh, with the only proviso that they be qualified to be on the ballot. And by the way, for those people that ask, being indicted does not allow any state to, on the to take someone off the ballot. You can't do that on the presidential race. I've litigated this question in a wide range of contexts over 25 years. You can't do it. So that that's well-established law. That's why even James Comey is saying he can get elected from a prison cell. Eugene V. Debs was on a bunch of ballots, even though he was in a prison cell in 1920, uh, after he had a successful prior presidential campaign of 1912. Uh, successful since he got more votes than any third party of that type socialist uh, uh, ever. So the uh, so 
there's no question he can, but I would argue that merely indicting him is an attempt to interfere in the 2024 election and then constitutionally to protect the integrity of our elections that we have to uh, not allow any indictment case to move forward until the election is resolved or uh, done. The so that there's no negative adverse impact on the election from the fact of indictment. The other selective prosecution part is what everybody has mentioned, which is the discriminatory, disparate, two-tiered system of justice. The First Amendment prohibits that. The First Amendment uh, prohibits something called selective prosecution. You can't indict someone in order to suppress or punish their speech, their activity, their expression, their association, their being a candidate for office, etc. Clearly, that is the case here because we go all the way back. Well, as I pointed out, if 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 a president having personal custody and possession of information that concerns national security is a crime. And indict, by the way, that is what this indictment alleges. Indict all of them. Clinton. All of them Bush. would have to be. Every lie. Uh, Jimmy Carter would have to be indicted. Everybody would, because every single one of them has personal cust custody and possession right now of information that concerns national security. That's how absurd Jack Smith, who has a long history of pursuing ridiculous legal theories like he did against John Edwards, like he did against the former governor of Virginia, like he's done in other cases where he's been repeatedly rejected by judges and juries alike for the absurdity of his legal theories. Here he is proposing that the national security laws trump the presidential record laws, that the Congress has constitutional authority to criminally punish the executive branch for doing the executive branch's constitutional duties. Two utterly absurd propositions that he has made without any precedent whatsoever. The only precedent directly refuting and rebutting him, even from a liberal judge, Amy Berman Jackson of the District of Columbia. But then we have the practical precedent and the custom and tradition, which is that presidents all have national security information in every one of their presidential libraries as we speak. Not only that, they have it in their personal custody, like Clinton did. Clinton was recording conversations with an author where he was discussing national security information and classified information on those tapes. That's why he kept the tapes. He kept them in his sock drawer, his sock drawer. Uh, uh, the, I mean, in the case of Barack Obama, he had a bunch of national security information in an abandoned storage locker that was all that anybody could have accessed if they hadn't, you know, knew where it was probably more than a few did. Uh, the, and he refused, by the way, to return it to National Archives for almost a year. The, I mean, Biden had stuff in his, you know, uh, in his garage next to his Corvette. So abandoned storage lockers, your sock drawer and your Corvette in your car garage. And Trump has it in a secured location in one of the most secured places on the planet after he had become president, which is Mar-a-Lago. And he's the one you're going to indict. And that's not selective prosecution. Uh, if that isn't selective prosecution, then there is no selective prosecution limitation anymore. So that is additional First Amendment grounds to dismiss the indictment. So you've already got four different constitutional grounds, but it doesn't stop there because then you've got the ludicrous nature of the search warrant. You've got the search warrant was too broad. The search warrant made false statements of fact. And then you've got and so you have procurement of the search warrant in violation of probable cause because of material misrepresentations in it. Then you have the execution of the search warrant where they failed to properly present it in a timely manner, where they seized information that by their own admission was outside the scope of permissible scope of the search warrant, and they seized it anyway, and they haven't even identified what classified information was actually relevant to the indictment because there's no classification-based indictment uh, allegation present in the case, as people pointed out. 
So you have problems in the execution of the search warrant. So you have this big poison tree at the center of their entire case that poisoned the rest of it that's independent grounds for dismissal under the Fourth Amendment. Then you have a unique Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment grounds to dismiss because, as you note, there's a bunch of their entire cases based on attorney-client communications. This is a deliberate breach of attorney-client privilege. How do they get it? They got it by a corrupt judge in D.C. who wasn't even supposed to be presiding over the case given that it was in Florida. No, I I want people to appreciate that a lawyer flipping is now disclosing solicitor-client privilege documents and their notes on their meetings with their own clients. Like I didn't stress that I was going to do a, a vlog breaking this down, but then, you know, the poo poo hit the fan in Canada, the, the, the notes where the lawyer says he made a plucking noise. I mean, this is to the core of solicitor client privilege documents, unless I'm mistaken, Robert. No, no, this is all clear. This undisputed attorney client privilege communications, their entire intent case goes from breaching attorney client privilege. And the problem, and, and the only reason why the court allowed it to go forward was because they brought the, that part of the case in D.C. When, and I'll get into it in a second. There's problems now because they've admitted the whole case belonged in the Florida all along. Why did they go to D.C.? Because a D.C. chief judge presiding over the grand jury hates Donald Trump and, ru- and ruled uh, that they could breach attorney-client privilege to the extent that what they exposed was crime. But they didn't expose that. Because again, once you understand, this is where Article Two defense bridges into the attorney-client defense, which is that if none of this was criminal, then they couldn't breach attorney-client privilege in the first place. So that's how, and and so even if the they say, well, we'll only set aside some of the charges on Article Two grounds, not the obstruction-related charges, because the attorney-client privilege breach was key to all the charges in the case. And because the basis of it was ignoring Article 2, ignoring the Presidential Records Act application, that means that if that judge decision was wrong, then that means that attorney-client privilege could have never been breached. And that means the entire case has to be thrown out because attorney-client privilege is also enforced through the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, though uniquely here has Article 2 ramifications. So on a on a, a little side note, one, all these lawyers were pussies. Uh, they, they, these lawyers should be our disgrace. I said some of these lawyers were a disgrace. They were completely a disgrace. Any lawyer worth his salt, first of all, don't go around taking notes against your client. They, 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 no business doing that whatsoever. I mean, how, are you that dumb? Are you that lazy? Are you that incompetent? Well, Evan Corcoran and these losers. These are just these are the people that they should be seeking to disbar. Not Jeffrey Clark. But and Robert, then you're such a wuss. You're so weak. You're so pitiful. You're so sorry. You go, oh, okay, judge. I'll just come in and rat out my client. Sit in jail. Make him take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Make him put you in prison. Expose these corrupt frauds of partisan judges for what they are. They're trying to destroy the Constitution of America. Stand up for something. I actually feel bad for having tried to interrupt you there, Robert. Do, do we even know that the notes were contemporaneous, that they're that they're authentic, no. that they were taken at the time? Or we don't maybe- know any of that. And they shouldn't have been taking notes. They shouldn't have testified. They should have said, screw you. One, you got to give me immunity. Two, okay, give me immunity. Fine, I'm still not going to testify. Put me in jail. Put me in jail. See, see, put the president's lawyer in prison because you want to breach attorney-client privilege. Put that on the front page of the news for the next six months. Take that up to the United States Supreme Court. And even then, you can keep me in prison. See how that's going to work for you long term. The, most of the time, they don't have the guts to do it, by the way. 
because they know how it will politically backfire on them. But these are all lawyers folded quicker than a cheap tent. The, uh, they lifted up their legs faster than the cheapest whore in a whorehouse. That's how terrible these, uh, these lawyers were. They're a disgrace. They're a disgrace. And, you know, I've been telling people like Steve Bannon and the rest of them, quit hiring all these white-collar wusses. Uh, these are people that do not know how to handle political cases, don't have guts or balls uh, to defend anybody in a political case. You've got the Constitution on the line. Have some guts. I mean, that's why I respect the Jerry Spences of the world. That's why I respect the old school guys, guys that would be held in contempt themselves by a federal court like the lawyer defending the Chicago 7, risking 15 years in federal prison because he stood up for something. When he took his oath, he meant it. These lawyers sadly, pitifully did not. But that's just, and part of that's on Trump. Quit looking for white shoe fancy lawyers. Quit looking for two uh, cheap lawyers. Look, don't, don't look for lawyers so far outside the system, they don't know what inside the system looks like. Plenty of quality, skilled lawyers and continue to use their advice rather than a lot of this other <laughs> good with that. With good lawyers, Trump's never here, even with the, the deep state being as corrupt as they are. Now, that, but that still doesn't end oh, the hold grounds on. to dismiss. Hold on, indictment. Robert. But wait. All right, Robert, what's, what's, I'm sorry. There is indeed. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on. This may be the most unconstitutional case ever brought. Not only is it the most dangerous case to constitutional liberty in American history, it is a case that is riddled with constitutional error and defect. So the next one is, here's what you can't do. I heard Napolitano. Napolitano's got to go back to law school. I heard Napolitano suggest that you could have one grand jury to screen and another grand jury to indict. No, you can't. The grand jury is limited to the same venue provisions as the uh, trial provisions are limited to. You can't go fishing for which grand jury might indict somebody in another venue. So you, what should have happened here from the get-go is that the only grand jury formed should have been in the Southern District of Florida. But they didn't want the U.S. Attorney's Office from the Southern District of Florida to have access to the case. They didn't want a grand jury in the Southern District of Florida that might go AWOL having control of the case. And most importantly, they didn't want Judge Cannon or a judge like that presiding over things like attorney-client privilege breach concerning the grand jury subpoenas in the case. So what they did is they misused and abused a grand jury that did not have venue over the case in order to manipulate judicial selection, which is a violation of the grand jury clause, a violation of the venue clause, a violation of due process. So you have Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights to bring to dismiss the indictment just for the abuse of the grand jury process. So you've got Article 2, you got the Presidential Records Act, you've got the First Amendment on two different grounds, you have the Fourth Amendment, now you have the Fifth, Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment on attorney-client privilege, you have the Fifth and Sixth Amendment on issues of uh, grand jury abuse, but you're not finished then because they use the Espionage Act. And as the ACLU and, and, and uh, used to argue, they'll probably go and hide now, uh, the Espionage Act has always been unconstitutional, just like the Seditious Act. Sedition Acts have been unconstitutional. It's time to challenge them, and this is a great statute to challenge them. There is no greater absurd application of the Espionage Act than to apply it to the elected president of the United States, who by definition cannot commit espionage because he is the president, elected president of the United States. Uh, he can't spy against himself. Uh, he can't disclose it. He can't keep, hide secrets from himself. Uh, none of this can it, it shows you how this whole case is. Does the deep state run America or does the elected constitutionally appointed president run America uh, on the run the executive branch? And so on those grounds, uh, they can also seek dismissal. But that's not all. 
Uh, there's many of these statutes that are being brought are being brought for, on grounds of void for vagueness, whether it's the interpretation of national security information, its application to the presidential records of the president in general, uh, the use of the obstruction statutes, the things he's interpreting as obstruction, you know, plucks or obstruction, saying, I don't know is obstruction, like he's prosecuting uh, one of Trump's uh, secure bodyguards because he said he didn't know. Hillary Clinton has said it how many times? 38, 65, 94? When was she prosecuted? This is makes a complete crock of the entire constitutional system of governance and the Department of Justice being well, anything other than the Department of Injustice. Well, in, in fairness to them, Robert, they got away with it with Michael Flynn, where when everybody says he made false statements to the FBI in the context of an exam of, a, of an uh, investigation, his statements that they said were false were equivocated statements. He says, I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. You have the transcript. And they still got him on it. And so they learned the right lesson from a weaponized uh, judicial system. But that's still not all. So not only do you avoid for vagueness, Fifth Amendment challenges unique here to the espionage and obstruction laws being applied to the president concerning what is everyone's agreed disputes about the law. If lawyers can't agree on the law, how in the world are you going to put the president in prison uh, for not understanding it, supposedly? So the uh, under their interpretation. But you have government misconduct. So the right to due process of law includes that the government not engage in malfeasance or misconduct in their prosecution. Here you have extraordinary evidence of misconduct, and no surprise, because Jack Smith and two of his lead prosecutors have previously been judicially found to have engaged in systematic and systemic misconduct and ethical and professional breaches of people's constitutional rights. How do they still have a job? How are they still in the Justice Department? They're running around the D.C. bar after Jeffrey Clark for merely exposing the election fraud that took place in 2020, trying to disbar him in the District of Columbia, while these lawyers who have been judicially found to engage in misconduct are given the power to indict a president of the United States and the leading candidate for president of 2024. And what were some of the things some of these lawyers were doing? They were telling lawyers that if they wanted to be appointed a judge under the Biden administration, they better force their client to flip against their client's own interests. This is a this is bribery and extortion and intimidation and obstruction by the U.S. attorneys bringing cases for so-called obstruction. So you've got extraordinary government misconduct that took place throughout these proceedings. And you have another question. The special counsel statute itself. Is it constitutional and under these circumstances that now will be addressed? Because if it's not, then the entire indictment was brought by a prosecutor didn't have the authority to do it. And by the way, that too has been previously litigated and found you have to dismiss in those cases. So that's just the constitutional problems with the case. Doesn't get into the statutory problems in the case. Doesn't get into the evidentiary problems into the case. Doesn't get into what we don't even know yet about misconduct in front of the grand jury, misconduct with other witnesses that is probably going to be disclosed and discovered in the case. It doesn't get to the very robust intent defense Trump has in front of a jury, which at this point will have at least a third of the jury be pro-Trump jurors. Good luck trying to convict Trump in that instance when the whole world, 80%, according to a poll this weekend, see this case as entirely political, including many Democrats think the case is political. And there's probably no jurisdiction in America more cognizant of politically BS cases and rebelling against them than the Southern District of Florida. Because you got a bunch of Cubans and Venezuelans that know what a, and Haitians that know what a show trial looks like, and they want nothing to do with it and refuse to ratify it. So the president has unique, robust defenses constitutionally, factually, and legally in this case. 
uh, that are extraordinary for any defendant to have. Robert, what would be the monetary value if this were drafted into a, an opinion of the opinion or the analysis that you just gave for a client? That's a sorry, not a sorry. It's a rhetorical question, Robert. Fanta- this is this is all the legal stuff, which doesn't even get into the veracity of the allegations in the indictment. Phenomenal. Yeah, my guess is that he never actually showed anybody any documents. I mean, here's the core moral po- policy problem they have. If you're going to bring a political case, you need a case with a real victim. When you don't have a real victim, juries tend to rebut it because they instinctively are skeptical of cases that scream politics. Here, who's the victim? The deep state? for being exposed at lying to the American people for their secrets and trying to go to war in Iran and China and yep. everywhere else under God's green earth. The ain't no jury going to be sympathetic to that outside the district of Columbia. In this case, ain't going to be tried in the district of Columbia. So that alone uh, makes it very, uh, there's no harm here. There's like people, it's the same problem in the New York case. So like who is harmed by it? Oh, Trump. Oh, they're, they're indicting Trump for harming himself. I mean, this is nuts. They're now indicting Trump for exposing the crimes of the deep state, which is what he's supposed to be doing. That's his constitutional job. So uh, the that's how nuts the case is. Uh, now, I think that the I don't see what Turley, the one part of Turley's analysis I did agree with was he said there's a very high chance this case never reaches trial before the election. Mm-hmm. And there's a very high chance that Trump is pardoned by somebody at some point, if not he himself. And so the reason for that, so on Tuesday, they'll set a trial date. That might be a couple of months out. That doesn't mean anything. That's just the date set for at that time. Because of the complex and complicated legal issues and then future evidentiary issues with government misconduct hearings in this case, I would be shocked if this case gets to trial before Election Day. Could they not just postpone it and say, look, we're going to resolve all the procedural stuff before even giving it a pro forma trial date? Uh, it would be, they always, uh, depends under the speedy trial act. They, uh, the Jack Smith said he, he, they're going for a fast trial. Of course they are. They, they don't want, uh, the verdict to happen after election day. They don't want election day to be the verdict that, that that's what they don't want mm-hmm. because that's the ultimate outcome here is election day is going to be the verdict on this. And the American people are going to reject the deep state in mass is my prediction. Um, we'll see if I'm right. Uh, those that bet against me lose a lot more often than those who bet with me. Uh, as those on who are, uh, did the bet on the UEFA final final championship uh, game uh, this past uh, weekend uh, discovered betting on betting with me a lot more profitable betting against me. But the uh, uh, if but it's so that's why the judge may schedule in a criminal case may stick a trial a speedy trial act date on there. But uh, Trump can waive that and the court can move that past. The public also has its own interest in a speedy trial, but she can move that based mm-hmm. on the extraordinarily unique legal issues here. Both sides are going to want to appeal any uh, adverse decision by the district court. This case screams for precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court. And so even though that's the interlocutory stage, you don't have a right to it. I, I can't see the district court not affording that opportunity and not wanting the uh, Supreme Court to have a chance to address it before he even reaches trial because the kind of case that shouldn't reach trial until those issues are resolved. And so because of how a trial verdict could impact uh, and interfere with the integrity of the election in November. So I think a conscientious court, and this court has shown that evidence so far, uh, would say, I want legally robust issues, constitutional issues fully vetted, I want opportunity for both sides to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court on these extraordinarily unique issues. I want to manage this case in a way that limits its 
uh, influence on the 2024 election. So there's as little interference as possible in the election from this case. This case should be done independent of that election and should be handled in a manner that does not impair or interfere with that election. That would ultimately schedule any jury trial until after the election. That's the only way to do so in a way that's uh, consistent with their constitutional obligations of the court. Many courts, I would be concerned, being uh, riddled with cowardice when it comes to the deep state. But this court has not shown that in the past. So I believe this court ultimately, I don't think the case reaches a jury trial until after Election Day. I think Election Day is its own verdict and will ultimately answer this case one way or the other. Uh, I don't think this judge will use bail authority or get or gag Trump in any meaningful way that will limit his ability to campaign for office. I think this court will be very conscientious of not interfering in the election process. So I don't think much of the criminal justice process will tie up Trump much at all. Hopefully he presents all of these robust constitutional defenses he has, investigates to expose the degree of government misconduct in the case, gets full discovery, has that whole process, and then lets Election Day be the real verdict. Uh, now, my view is uh, I do have an a, interpretation as to what should happen in the future policy-wise, but also why Biden might have brought this indictment, knowing he might not secure a conviction prior to Election Day. Do, do I ask? Sure. Why? Well, you can guess if you want. You're Joe Biden. What? Uh, what? What might you do uh, if, say, let's say Trump wins uh, election day, or maybe even you win Biden, or somebody else wins? What might you do after your? Uh, if for some reason you're no longer going to be president, January twentieth, twenty twenty-five. Well, pardon yourself and your family. But what would be the best way to get away with that? Um, pardon Trump as well. Exactly. Yes. This is what I think the uh, this is what I think the back pocket Biden strategy is that this indictment presents leverage for him to get away with pardoning himself and his allies, his family, maybe pardoning a bunch of the deep state people that still are at criminal exposure for those that are under the Durham report. Pardon all those people so that no incoming administration going go after and he can do it saying, look, I'm just doing this for America. I'm not just, you know, pardoning me. I'm pardoning Donald Trump. I'm pardoning, uh, you know, I'm doing this so that we can start anew. So the new president can have a clean, clean, uh, clean, clean streak. Uh, and it becomes the political cover he needs to pardon himself and his family. All right. That's that's. Um... Very, very enlightening, Robert. And um, we're, I'm, I'm going to make a highlight of this entire section. And I think everyone out there is going to share it so that it makes it all the way up to whomever is counsel. Robert, I mean, I'll ask the stupid question. You would obviously accept a mandate to represent Trump in this matter, or would you be able to? Oh, sure. And there'd be a lot of people that would. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, he can build together a real dream team and he should. The other question I had was, hypothetically, he wins the presidency becomes president again, pardoning himself might look guilty. Would he say, I'll take it to trial and prove my innocence? And if I don't, I, not that he has to prove his innocence, but you know you know what I mean? I, I think he knows it's garbage and he would just pardon just, himself. Just, 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 issue, just start issuing pardons. January, for all the politically uh, weaponized cases, just start pardoning across the board. And with it, pardon Julian, uh, Edward Snowden, pardon Julian Assange. Pardon all what a Trump pardon should look like is a pardon of all the victims of the deep state, which includes all the January 6th defendants, includes Edward Snowden, includes Julian Assange, includes Trump himself, 
and includes uh, uh, there's a good number of other people, includes prior whistleblowers. Robert Kennedy has already said he will do pardoning all the whistleblowers, include all those people in, in the list as well. Uh, pardoning some, they're already out of prison, but pardoning them for the uh, purpose of their record. Uh, so just pardon in mass all the victims of deep state prosecution. It's amazing. I mean, this has, even as a Canadian with absolutely no voting rights, this has made me want to be as vocal, proactively and unabashedly uh, supportive of Trump publicly, even though I think we've already you know, been that way, be- because it is just so over the top. It, it, it has reduced the state of America to a banana republic. And what is clearly, you know, it, it makes Brazil look, le- you know, not good by comparison, but look, uh, you know, par for the course by comparison. And oh, I mean, definitely remember we sanctioned Russia because the, the Lyndon LaRouche of Russia, Russia was indicted by a local government official for systemic fraud. And we sanctioned him saying it was absolutely horrendous that anybody who was a potential competitor even if he was not a meaningful competitor, uh, well, that Putin uh, allowed a local government to indict. And uh, how can we pardon, how can we sanction Russia for that? And then we just indicted the leading opponent and the former president of the United States. I mean, it, it makes us look like an, an, an embarrassment on the international stage. But like I said, the greatest dangers, this case is deep state versus democracy. If we, if this case allows the precedent of the case even being allowed to go forward to trial, that would be a shame and a crime against the Constitution and would put our constitutional governance and our system of governance in great jeopardy. That's why systematically part of the policy reform has to be to completely defund the deep state, clarify all of these ridiculous classification laws uh, that the, they never applied to the elected president, never can apply to the elected president at a minimum. In my view, dramat- uh, get rid of the Espionage Act, get rid of the seditious and nonsense, get rid of all of those provisions and laws, quit prosecuting whistleblowers for disclosing information. And we have way too many secrets. Secrets promote a deep state, not democracy. Uh-huh. Secrets endanger liberty, not promote it. Secrets don't make us more safe. Secrets are what threaten our liberty from the get-go.